Amen. Please be seated. You will find on the insert the passages I will focus on this morning. A preacher goes through a certain kind of withdrawal after preaching an expositional series for over two years, uh, walking through Paul's uh, letters to the Corinthians with you. It's been life-changing personally. I hope that it has impacted you similarly. Uh, After some discussion, prayer, and uh, further discussion with the elders about what would be the next exposition, uh, the book of Isaiah was chosen. But we will start that in August. There will be several weeks I won't be here between now and then. And it does present a, a bit of a opportunity for a summer series that I think is important from time to time. Uh, we don't have it happen often where there's a topical series. Uh, this is a chance to address something that may be uh, hitting us right immediately. And so I think it's important to go to the text of Scripture and make sure we have our bearings and understanding. And this is certainly such a time uh, for such a thing. I think there's some important matters before us as Christians, and it's good to pause and reflect on these Sunday morning. That's what we'll do, uh, Lord willing, for the four sermons that I have coming up starting today. I will lay the groundwork so you understand uh, the importance of this. Hopefully you agree. Uh, I have two passages there on the insert that I will begin with. Uh, You will understand the theme, as it says on the top of your insert, did God actually say? That's a quote taken from the second passage that I will read. Please follow as I read God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I will read first Genesis 2, 15 to 17, and then I'll go to the next passage that is there uh, noted for you on your insert. Please hear as I read. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now moving to Genesis 3, I'll read the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am sure that believers in every generation are confronted with a culture that opposes your word, a world around them that takes opposition to your word. 
I'm sure that disbelief is a constant ailment even among those who consider themselves part of your church. I'm sure that your church has always struggled with your word against the world. What does it mean? How do we apply it? How do we live by it? How do we uphold it? Nevertheless, in our short lifetimes and in our immediate culture, it does seem like some long-standing, relatively widespread beliefs and values are tumbling at an alarming rate. Lord, I pray for a revival of trust in and hunger for your word among Christians. I pray for churches who have watered down your word because of pressure from the world. I pray that you would shore up our church if we have done similarly. Shore up our church, this fellowship, and our commitment to your timeless word. Shape us by your word and keep us from trying to shape your word according to the world. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But your word, O Lord, endures forever. Amen. In 1996, a second-year pitcher started throwing a pitch that had never been seen quite like it before. Mariano Rivera, a projected starting pitcher at the time he was drafted in 1995, was being converted into a relief pitcher by 1996. Turned out to be a good move. One day, while throwing a catch with Ramiro Mendoza, another pitcher, Rivera noticed the ball move in a way he had not seen before based on a particular grip he had on the ball. Almost immediately, Rivera started employing the same throw, but with far more velocity, as his signature pitch. The cut fastball, the Mo Cutter from Mariano Rivera, was put into full effect in 1997 and became almost the exclusive pitch of the greatest closer in baseball history. 19 years in the big leagues, 18 as a closer. Rivera finished with a regular season 2.21 ERA, and for those who don't know what that means, that's really low. He holds the most saved games in Major League history, 652. Despite pitching only one inning in most of the games that he played in, he amassed over 1,200 strikeouts over that time. He did all of this essentially with one pitch that everybody knew was coming. It wasn't a surprise. The cut fastball was the most famous pitch in baseball for years while he threw it. Everyone knew he had the pitch and used the pitch, but very few people ultimately were able to conquer it. For lefties, the pitch came across the plate inside, but would cut even more drastically inside, causing you to break your bat many times. For righties, the pitch came in the middle of the plate, seemingly, and went outside. Lots of strikeouts for righties. For 18 of his 19 seasons, Rivera used this pitch almost exclusively, without apology. He had other pitches. He had a slider and he had a a four-seam fastball. But in the end, over 97% of the time, he kept going back to his cutter over and over and over again. Even when he lost a little velocity near the age of 40, the cutter kept working. Despite how simple it looked and 
how one-dimensional it seemed. Rivera kept using the cut fastball. Why? Because it worked. The only thing better than his regular season ERA was his postseason ERA of .99. And to those Royals fans in the house, and I know there are many, there, there is only one pitcher who has a better playoff ERA, Madison Bumgarner. Rivera had 42 playoff saves. These are saves against the best hitters in the game. 42 saves. And helped his team win multiple World Series titles with one pitch. The cut fastball. Because the pitch worked. Now I want to make an analogy. And Mo Rivera is no devil. Because he is in fact a strong believer But the devil has used a similar tactic with people, particularly with believers, that's the focus, for millennia. The devil has many, many tools in his arsenal that he would use to trip us up, but the one he goes to over and over and over again, which is most effective, is the one we see him use with Adam and Eve in this passage before us. The devil's cut fastball is to make us doubtful and confused about what God's word actually says. Here's the devil's cutter. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That seems so simple. I mean, we know it's coming. But that's not what God said at all. God said for Adam and Eve not to eat of the one tree in the garden. Despite God's very clear word in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, which I began with, he causes them to doubt and second-guess by asking, did God actually say? By presenting a different consensus, he trips up Adam and Eve. He uses a question to get into the head of Adam and Eve and twist God's word. That's what we see the devil use over and over again, and at the beginning of this series, we have to see clearly what his cut fastball is and how to hit it. Adam and Eve stumble under the deceitful pressure of the devil and mistake God's word, and the result is sin. The result of ignoring or twisting God's word is always the same for a person or for a church or for a society. It's sin, death, and misery. That's what happens. Now, let's look at this ancient tactic of Satan before us in the passage, the earliest of passages in the book of Genesis, where we see him twisting or obscuring God's word, making believers doubtful or confused about God's word. He uses a dialectic process, which we'll consider in a moment. It's a very effective process for teaching things, for teaching truth even. He uses this dialogue with Eve to entrap her. Look at the first passage. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, and here's God's clear word, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What does it say very clearly? You can eat of every tree in the garden except one. Do not eat of this particular tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, please recognize it doesn't say anything more than do not eat from it. We aren't to add to God's word anymore to take it away from from it. It didn't say if they want to put a tire swing in it, they couldn't. It doesn't say that. 
Let's only say what God's word says. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of this one tree, you will surely die. It will cause death if you eat it. Now, I want you to, for a moment, think of what he's saying so we grasp the, the wonder of God, the loving kindness of God. It would be something like this. I take you down the street, 151st and Black Bob, and we go to High V, the new High V. Yeah, you, you know the high V I'm talking about. You walk into this high V on the left-hand side, and it has everything a person could want to eat. It's got ethnic food of all varieties up the left-hand side. It's got a cafe over here to the left. It has a huge salad bar with, with uh, a fruit bar as well. And then it has, it has produce everywhere, meat in the back sack. It's got everything. And if I told you, here, have at it, it's all yours. Every bit of it's yours. Your first response would be overwhelmed with my kindness. And I can't believe you provided all this for me. It's so good. Anything I could want. There's things I don't like, but there's so many other things I like. And it just, I could be satisfied here for a long time. And you would be thankful for being put in a place with so much variety, so much wonder, so much provision. But then I'd say to you, now hold one second. Over here, come here. You'd have to look. It's, it's hard to see with everything else. But let me show you this little display with these apples on it. Better yet, with this uh, asparagus on it. Let's say asparagus. With this asparagus on it. Just like it looks, if you eat it, it'll kill you. Okay, don't eat from this display. You can have everything else. Now, I hope in your pre-fall condition, your first reaction wouldn't be, how can he say, I can't eat that? Your reaction would be, thank you, again, that you're saving me from this. If you say this will kill me, I'll stay away from this. I will obey you in this because look at everything else you've given me. And that's the first sense you might imagine uh, our first parents to have had when God gives them all this. There's no thought of what he didn't give us or what they couldn't have, but all that they could have and how he loved them enough to stop them from eating from this one tree. That's the state they find themselves in. But now using this dialectic process, the cut fastball of the devil, he comes up to Eve and see what he does. He uses this process of critical thinking, which is a good teaching tool in most cases, uh, used to change fixed beliefs and values. It begins by challenging or questioning current beliefs, raising doubts about the validity of truth. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now the cut fastball is coming, and when Eve sees it's coming, she's like, Oh, I got this one, like so many people have said before. I'm going to hit this one. I got this one. I see what he did. She sees it coming across the plate. I can hit it. The woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. See, she's on this ball. She's on it. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. See, I'm going to nail this thing. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die with another strike. That's not what God said. And now the devil has her. She's not clear about the word. He uses this process to contort her thinking, to warp her way of viewing what God had clearly said. Just a slight mistake, but a monumental whiff by Eve. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. He goes right for denial of the word now. He has her. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The dialogue moves in Satan's favor as he outright denies God's word, and Eve buys it. Eve starts to believe that maybe the world that the devil's talking about is the true world. Maybe the, the word or the impression of the devil is really the perspective she should have. It's one she doesn't have before and didn't have. Maybe, maybe it's not right, the other one. And she starts to wonder and waffle. And she starts to see the lens change from what God's word said to what the devil says is consensus. And now looks at consensus at what God said. Maybe he's not being fair to me. Maybe if it's not popular out there, God's holding something back from me. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. You know what? The devil is right about this because it is good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it. And there's a whole sermon on verse 6 that I won't preach today. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. God's word came true as their spirits died and their bodies followed suit. And the whole of the Bible is the story of God's recapturing what was lost by the first Adam. But for now, don't miss this ancient tactic of the devil. Did God actually say is his cut fastball? Now, I bring this to you as a sermon series because it's a contemporary issue in every age, but there are particular applications or there are particular cut fastballs being thrown today that we have to be aware of. It's a contemporary problem compounding before our eyes. There are many teachers and preachers of the word who have done like Adam and Eve with their understanding of God's word. Now, I want to be clear. This isn't a message about how we need to make the culture around us think more like the Bible teaches. That is not possible to make unbelievers think like believers. The issue and the challenge is for Christians to think like believers, to believe in the word. Now, I believe that will have impact if the church is sanctified by the word and God's word is truth. But our focus isn't, this isn't some nationalistic sermon about all the problems out there. This is about where the church has to believe in the word again. That's what this is about. It happens there's a local pastor here who's well known in the whole nation one of the biggest churches in the country. He's been writing books for years, undercutting the idea that the Bible is God's inspired and errant word. Wrote a book most recently, bestseller, especially among mainline churches, How to Make Sense of the Bible is the name of it. He states in interviews and in the introduction of the book itself how he came to write this book. And the views he espoused make more sense when you understand why he wrote it. He was reading his Bible one time while he was studying to become a minister. And he kept coming across difficult passages. Maybe he fast-forwarded to some of Pastor Nathan's First and Second Samuel sermons. You know, rough things are displayed in God's word. True things that happen are difficult to reconcile. And he lists off all these things that he couldn't understand how they fit into today's thinking. You know, how, how does the Bible, the way the Bible talks about these mass killings or these wars or slavery or all these things, how, how can these be? And, and it, he said, what do I do with this? 
And so he set about the majority of his teaching life to help people realize that really we should only focus on the things in the Bible that seem most Christ-like. He even goes as far as to break up the Bible into three categories, saying there's one area we all know has got to be true, which is what Jesus says, love your neighbor. There's a second area that, you know, it's somewhat, it's, it's somewhat debatable. We can disagree within the church about it. It's not very clear, so it's not as important. And there's a third thing that's in the Bible that just can't be God's will. It's too hardcore. It's obviously attached to a time. It's archaic. It's primitive. It's interesting that the Adam in the garden isn't the only Adam to miss this pitch. Here's some quotes from Making Sense of the Bible. And I point this out because it's a popular book and a popular way of thinking. It's very likely you'll meet people uh, who will talk in these terms. And again, we're talking Christians. I don't expect Bill Maher to think, this, think properly about the Bible. I don't expect your college professor to come with, this, with the right perspective on it. I don't expect even your expert uh, co-worker who's been reading a lot of books, uh, who's trying to disprove everything you believe all. I'm not even expecting them to come with it. I'm talking about believers in the church or pastors in the church teaching Christians how to think biblically, what the Bible teaches, and how we apply it, these kinds of things. Out of this book, Making Sense of the Bible... Here's just one of many quotes. My premise is that the Bible is the words of people who were influenced by God, and yet who were also shaped by the times in which they lived. The violence attributed to God in the Bible is a serious issue that Christians must address. Agreed, and there's a way to address it. He goes on, It is inconsistent with the character of God described in many places in the Old Testament, and certainly inconsistent with the word of God revealed in Jesus Christ, who calls his followers to love their enemies. He says further, The Bible was written by men seeking to express what they believed was God's will. They were writing in a given time and culture, and they were writing to address the needs of people at that time. On the doctrine of inspiration, which is a pivotal doctrine for us, who believe that the Bible is the word of God and not just simply one of the ways God shows himself. The doctrine of inspiration, we believe, is God's spirit working through a human author to keep them from error as they write God's message as prophets or apostles. And so what we have on the page then is the message from God kept safe from the frailties of the person writing it. That's the doctrine of inspiration. It's God inspiring a writer to write his word. That's not what this author says and what is most commonly taught today among such thinkers. He says the most important dimension of inspiration Maybe how God uses the words of Scripture to speak to us today. We may read a passage of Scripture and hear nothing at all. Then we read it again prayerfully, and we hear something we did not hear before. We sense God speaking to us. He says that early Christians may have written under the same kind of inspiration that we experience today, but the difference is they were writing close to the events described. Inspiration for him is what happens to the reader, not what God does through a writer huge difference. He says there are things commanded in the Bible in the name of God that today we know it's immoral and inconsistent with the true heart of God. That's a whiff, like a real big whiff on the devil's pitch. Because what he's done is he's, he's done a consensus of what people think today. And then he reads the Bible and says, boy, that's uncomfortable compared to what people think today or what people want to live like, or what people feel like, or what people say their experience is. It doesn't match this. So certainly, I must be reading this wrong somehow. 
And so the lens switches to consensus and popular culture to look through it to see what the Bible says and reinterprets the Bible accordingly. Eve is in the garden. She knows the world as God has given it to her. The devil makes her think that's not the consensus. There's others here who think differently. You could eat from that tree. It's not going to do what God says it's going to do. And she gets twisted and confused by the cut fastball, and she's thinking about it. And now she's wondering about the consensus. And all, before she knows it, the lens has been twisted to now consensus and culture, and she can't see God's word clearly anymore. She's confused by it. It's cloudy to her. It doesn't make sense. And the further she looks through that lens, the more out of touch God's word feels like. It's an ingenious cut fastball, isn't it? Because it works. It does profound things to people. The devil convinced Eve that God was unreasonable. And the devil's been doing this ever since. Now, I don't mean that the devil himself is personally working on teachers and preachers in that sense. He may. But the devil has a legacy of the flesh that we all battle with as sinners and the world. So you might say the pressures of the world and worldly thinking can pressure us into thinking what God's word reveals just can't be right. There's lots of complexities in God's word. I hope you know that as we've been walking through the Bible together. But what we believe is that God's word is complex, but it's true. And so when we struggle with it, it's because we are the problem, not because of the word. Now, there may be many things that we go our whole life wrestling with, not completely understanding, but we're submissive to the fact that it's our problem. We ask God to help us understand it. We don't go to take our cue from what's out there to decide what it must say. It affects many, many things that we can't escape. The, the local pastor I'm talking about, and many people when they approach the Bible today, even those who claim the name of Christ as Savior, they do the same thing. When they come to a hard passage in Scripture, they rationalize that surely God didn't really mean that. And every culture and every age has different, they're different hot-button issues. We just have the ones that we're faced with. I'm going to try to address at least three of those in the next three sermons. When the Bible says that Jesus is the only way for people to be right with God, the only way to be saved, isn't that extreme, the consensus and culture would say, even among those who call themselves Christians? What about devout Muslims? What about devout Jews, devout Hindus? Surely, if they are devout about their understanding of God, won't they be saved? When the Bible says that marriage is between one man and one woman, isn't that extreme? I mean, seriously, we've learned so much in recent years and times. So many people are happy not getting married and living together or, or choosing a different way to live their lives as they feel they should live it. Uh, they have a stronger sense of something else than what you're declaring as a definition. So many people are happy and fruitful in same-sex relationships. This couldn't be the Bible's teaching that they can't be happy or they can't carry out what they want to carry out. Isn't the Bible's teaching on marriage incomplete? We've learned so much over the years. When the Bible says that sex was created as part of the marital relationship, isn't that a seriously old-fashioned notion? I mean, I'm in college, and everybody can do what they want. As long as they're not married, they're not cheating. They can do what they want as long as they're not married. You see, married, once you're married now, you can't just do whatever you want. And it, and it goes on like this, and you have these kinds of discussions with people. They look at you crazy if you would suggest, no, it's reserved for a marriage relationship only. That's what God has it for. Surely this is old-fashioned. 
In every one of these currently discussed issues, the apparent cultural consensus becomes the lens that we see God's word through. Having read this book that I'm referring to, Making Sense of the Bible, it's definitely making a mess of the Bible. That's what a lot of the church is doing, and I think that's why we find ourselves in the trouble we are in culturally. I don't mean to say the culture wouldn't still go a certain way. I do mean to say that the church is salt and light, and as the church is sanctified by the word, it, God will often use the church to seriously set back the decay of an overall culture. I, I don't think the church can control culture, but I think the church can impact it by its sanctification through God's grace and his word. He doesn't always choose to do that. There are many examples on earth today where the church is faithful and they're under constant duress and persecution. The culture seems no better. But there are also many examples where the church was strong, uh, believer, humble believers in the word and followers of Christ, and God used that to bring many others to Christ and to stave off uh, the, the judgment that comes when we continue and persist in sin. I would even suggest that a lot of what we have enjoyed in our country comes from a time when there was a greater acknowledgement of God's timeless and eternal truth. Here's the answer that we'll seek in the remaining sermons. I'll give it to you in general here, and we'll see it applied throughout. It's very simple, as you would imagine, but it's profound, I think, as we start to unpack it. Christ himself, Christ, Jesus himself, is the answer, and his word is the solution. I want to bring this out more so you recognize what I mean by this. It's not as simplistic as it may seem, although it is, on the other hand. A cultural consensus cannot be the lens that we read God's word through. God's word must be the lens that we interpret cultural consensus or cultural values through. Look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 contains what I think is a good picture of the solution. Now, it's not a formula, And there's a primary meaning to this text, and there's a secondary application. I will show you what it is. But please see, the devil comes to the Lord Jesus, who is the second Adam now. Jesus comes to do what the first Adam failed at, to remain sinless, to stand up under the devil's temptations, to be our perfect sacrifice. And this meeting with Jesus and Satan in the wilderness has been set up over the millennia as God promised after Adam and Eve fell to send a seed from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And to begin the crushing process, he's proven as the second Adam, the perfect second Adam. And where he proves this is in this meeting with the devil in the wilderness. And you will see, as you would expect, the devil pulls out the cut fastball on Jesus. But you'll be introduced now to the only one who's ever hit that fastball. Verse 1, when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So he was at the end of his physical self. The God-man was as weak as he could be. Had to be completely reliant upon God to face the devil. You ever wonder what would have happened? I know it's been God's sovereign plan if Eve would have said, hold up. God, I got a question. I need help. God the Son, at the lowest point he could be physically, and the tempter, verse 3, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
Now, no creation or creature can give orders to the creator. That's against God's word. And so how does Jesus respond? But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, recognize God the Son did not need to quote scripture. Anything he spoke would have been God's word. He did so as a secondary application to this passage so we would see the importance of the word of God. Now, the first application is he is going to pass this test. He is going to show himself to be the worthy redeemer. That's what's important about Matthew 4. But there is a secondary point that you can see as the Lord Jesus demonstrates for us who are reading this today how the power of God's word overcomes Satan. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. A passage that calls us to depend upon God's word. Verse 5, second pitch is coming. Jesus has already hit this one out of the park. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands he will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. There's this sense in which the devil's trying to tempt Jesus to kill himself, to throw himself off before he does the work of redemption for us. He's trying to go against the plan of God, the will of God, the word of God. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil not giving up, having thrown two cut fastballs, both hit out of the park, comes at it with the third. Again the, devil took, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus was going to be exalted, the name above all names but he had to do the work of redemption. He would be raised again, and he would be ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, just like our call to worship. But his work was not done yet, and the devil was telling him to do something that was not his time, and it was out of its place, because the devil would never, ever be worshipped by God. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil tucked his baseball and left him. No more cutters. Behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. When Jesus was tempted to compromise truth and follow Satan's seductive reasoning, he went to God and his word, God's promise and his protection. Jesus accomplished this to complete his qualification, if you will, as a second Adam. Jesus also did this as I said, as an example about God's timeless word and our need to depend on it. In the wilderness, he demonstrated the way to faithfulness and stability, resting in him and his word. Now, I want to say very clearly that I suggest the solution is trusting in Jesus and his word. Now, I say this carefully because the word reveals to us our need to trust in Christ. The word reveals to us that we are, are, are weak vessels. Even in Christ, we are not intellectually superior to the devil. We're not intellectually superior to many people on earth. Uh, we rest in Christ. Uh, we can't hit the cut fastball. Jesus can. So we trust in him. 
Now, his word is what we spend our life learning and studying and humbly presenting, recognizing Jesus hit the cutter. We don't need to try to hit it again. What we need to do is know what his word says so we can recognize when things come up that oppose it. And we can humbly go to Christ on it. Now, I say this in distinction because there are some Christians who will say, they'll just hammer home the Bible to the point where it's almost like if this person says uh, this attack, you come up with this response. And they treat the Bible like it's a bunch of answers to a bunch of critics' questions. And it doesn't appreciate that the Bible is a living word of God that presents us the living Savior. It's more dynamic than just a little book like a telemarketer might use to flip to the, to the things you would disagree with so they can go to their answer right away. That's not what the Bible's for. In fact, you'll fall in those kind of arguments with that kind of, a, that kind of attempt, that kind of defense. There's a call to real humility to Christians here. That Jesus, the one who defeated the devils, who we rely on, we rest in. We humbly rest in him. So when things come our way, our approach is not to hammer home with what the Bible says, but carefully consider what our Savior has presented in his whole counsel. There's a difference in demeanor, and it makes all the difference in how we impact those around us. Jesus answered, it is written, not I think or I feel. Wielding the sword of God's word, as one commentator said, he cut through the deception and won the battle. We are called to analyze the message that we receive from the world as we are in the midst of it. And the way we analyze it is through the lens of God's word. We live in a time when God's word is being questioned in several crucial areas. These sermons seek to expose issues that God's word addresses clearly, but the culture is asking, or the culture is accusing us of being wrong. And many in the church are saying, did God actually say? Did God actually say that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Did God actually say that marriage is between one man and one woman? Did God actually say that sexual purity is a lifelong pursuit? I think these issues are critical for the sanctification of God's people. And I think by connection to a certain level, the preservation of a given society or culture. Even if you won't agree with me on the words applicability to the world at large, you have to agree that natural sense tells you that some of the things that we're attacking in this culture are deadly. We have a powerful God who has equipped his people with his sanctifying word. And if we want to see the world change, and I think everybody here wants to see a change, it has to start here in the household of faith. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are truly grateful that you have given us your holy word. Lord, I pray that you give us perseverance to handle what might come at us if we do uphold your word. Lord, maybe we don't have a stomach for persecution or suffering. Maybe we just would rather be left alone so we don't say anything or we go about doing whatever it is we do. And before we know, we're just like the world. Lord, give us courage to uh, stand up under what might come our way if we do stand for your word. Give us humility as we stand for your word. Give us love for everybody as all of us lost sinners without Christ. Pray, God, that you give us a real sense of your Spirit's uh, ministry in our life. 
and in our sanctification as we study your word over these, these weeks, especially devoted to these subjects. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond to